welcome to Hashtag CNF, a conversation about reading and writing with authors in the genre of creative nonfiction. I'm Brendan O'Mara. Harrison Scott Key is the winner of Creative Nonfiction's Southern Sin Essay Prize for his story The Wishbone, which is about his father suiting up a too-old Harrison to play peewee football to win a coveted game against rival Pearl. If it sounds funny, that's because it is. Key's wit and humor permeate the essay to keep the reader turning to see just what he and his father will do next in the high-stakes world of football in the South. Key's work has appeared in The Oxford American, The Pinch, Swink, Defenestration, the Chronicle of Higher Education, and teaches at the Savannah College of Art and Design. It is my great pleasure to welcome the author of The Wishbone, Harrison Scott Key, to Hashtag CNF. Well, thanks for inviting me, man. I'm excited to be here. Right. And at what point did you know you had the elements of a great essay here? Well, you know, this is a story that I have been telling for a long time. Uh, most of my essays, at least the, the memoir pieces from you know, 20, 30 years ago uh, are stories that I had been telling to a lot of people, you know, sitting around a campfire or sitting on someone's front porch or at a party or something, and some, you know, the story would just come up because of whatever subject, and I found, this was even before I was a writer, you know, before I was really trying to write some of these stories down, I just found that I was telling them over and over again, so I think when I started to write... And once I realized that memoir and autobiography is really probably what I should be writing, I just, I had these, this huge, you know, bucket of stories that I've been telling for so long, and it was really just a matter of knowing the stories were good, just trying to find out how to get the, how to get the goodness out and, you know, not make them too long and to, you know, pick and choose the right details. Right. And is that kind of how you, you flush out your story ideas is just by, again, maybe just, uh, essentially sitting around a campfire and and talking to friends and family and and then just realizing, hey, this this actually has the elements of something pretty darn good. Yeah, you know, I mean, you've got these, you know, I think everybody has these kind of seminal moments, these kind of crazy memories from your childhood. Uh, Everybody's got them. And, you know, some people just forget them. They just kind of get glossed over. You know, like this, like the football story, the, the wishbone, you know, this is a story that I probably did not want to think about too much right after it happened because it was kind of embarrassing and weird. And, mm-hmm. you know, unlike writers, you know, most people have to take the strange thing that happens to them and I won't say, you know, uh, suppress it, but you have to kind of explain it away because you're trying to, you know, feel normal, right? So the weird thing that happens, you don't want to talk about its weirdness. You kind of want to make it uh, seem normal like the rest of you and so i think like you know right after a lot of these stories happened i didn't think about them and i didn't think they were funny they were you know horrifying and terrible and weird and Mm -hmm. and embarrassing but then 
you know, five, ten years go by, you know, I find myself in college or graduate school, and I, and I kind of get horrified when I remember, like, oh, I remember that thing that my dad made me do that time. Oh, my gosh, that was so weird, and I had totally <laughs> forgotten about that. You know, I mean, I have conversations with people all the time from my childhood and, and that I went to school with and about crazy things that happened to us that I didn't even remember. Uh, and then as soon as I, you know, brought them up, I, it, it kind of all comes back to me. But once I have an idea... You know, I just I just take out a piece of paper and I just start writing down everything I can remember about that idea. I don't really outline so much as just start writing down every detail I remember. You know, I think, I don't know who it was, maybe Eudora Welty said, you know, when we write, we remember, and then, you know, the more we remember, the more we write. And, you know, you can find, you, they're kind of like little, you know, breadcrumbs that lead you from one memory to the next. Like, you know, trying to remember what day something happened on. You, know, you you can't remember it all, and all of a sudden you remember what show you were watching uh, when the uh, when the thing happened, and then you know you go on Google and you find out that you know in that year that show aired on Tuesdays, and then all of a sudden you've got you starting to kind of piece together a story. So I, I just write everything down that I can remember, and then I start trying to tell the story to the paper just the way I would tell it to somebody at a bar or at a party, mm-hmm. and you know it takes shape. Of course, you're going to write. 30 drafts of it so it's like you're retelling the story 30 times yeah. that's that's how it works yeah there was a great uh, exercise that a professor of mine had in college it was a, a memoir class and she had us just lay out a timeline and just from certain years and you would write down just this certain thing happened in 1989 you're thinking oh yeah i was playing with ninja turtles and all this that and the other and and then all of a sudden well yeah i was playing ninja turtles and then you realize like who you were you know friends with at the time and all of a sudden the mosaic starts to fill in and uh, right. fill in on itself so i totally understand where you're coming from in that instance you know, you know people ask me how i remember so much and i mean i guess it's just like working out or something you know you just the more you do it the more you remember and of course you know how much can you trust memory you know that's a that's a tough that's a tough call i think i felt a lot more uncomfortable with how much I remembered and how accurate it was earlier earlier in my career. I think what I realized, what I, what I started realizing is that, look, you know, if there were people who were there, if I, if I let them read the story or an early draft of the story, you know, there might be some huge detail that they don't remember that I do. So if I'm very confident in my memory, I'm going to leave it in there. Mm. But you know, also, I also want there to be room for argument. And so, you know, like my mom, um, you know, she will, you know, reads all my stuff and, and she will frequently say, oh, I don't remember that. What I remember was this. And then when she says that, I'm like, oh, I totally forgot about that. And then that that works its way into the story, too. So, you know, you can do your own fact checking. But I, my, my whole theory on, you know, the accuracy of childhood memories is that as long as, uh, the person, as long as, if somebody who was at, you know, at that scene or in that moment or in your life at the time, if they read it, they can disagree with it. They can say like, oh, like, okay, the way I explain it, I'll try to, I'll try to be focused here. Okay. So like, am I, like if I'm sitting around the dinner table with my family and that's, you know, we tell a lot of stories and, 
we frequently argue about what actually happened. I mean, this was before my becoming a writer. Like, I would, we would be telling some, you know, deer hunting story, and I would say, well, I remember this happened and this happened, and I came up to the deer stand, and my dad was doing this, and my brother's like, no, 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 he wasn't doing that. That was me. He was at the other place. And so we kind of have this yeah. argument, and, of course, it's friendly. It's not, We're not yelling at each other. But I think there's room for that kind of weird disagreement in memoir. Like, I'm telling my version of the story, and as long as you don't say it in such a way as to, you know, make somebody storm off away from the table because they hate you because they think you're lying like there's got to be room for disagreement but i think readers can tell or i think you know family members can tell when it's just misremembering and when it's like an outright case of distorting the truth intentionally right and when your father approached you to be the ringer on this peewee team uh do you think it was so he could see his son dominate if only once and even if it was against uh kids who hadn't quite hit puberty yet I think, well, you know, I mean, deep down, you know, what dad doesn't want to see his son kick some butt in football, no matter yeah. what the rules are, how old they are. Um, but I really, you know, for him, it was just a pragmatic thing. It was just he didn't have enough players to make his team, and he was going to have to forfeit his game. And so the most natural thing in the world was for him to say, well, I've got this son, and he doesn't look too much older than these other kids, so you can put a helmet on him, and he just looks like, you know, he's got a growth problem or something, <laughs> right. and he can play. So, like, for him, it was totally pragmatic. It was just, we need to play this game. He, he probably thought it was the moral thing to do because otherwise we would have to send all of his other teammates, or all the other uh, players home. Right, and has your father gotten a chance to read the essay? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, he doesn't read a lot. My mom sometimes makes him read my stories. Yeah. Um, actually, I think she had to, she read it to him because she said it was too long for him to read by himself. Mm-hmm. Um he yeah he read it and he said you know hey I read your story I thought it was pretty funny and that was about it uh, which is his way of saying um, uh, you know my mom my mom your, your mother said I had to tell you that I read your story uh, I, you know, she reads it and she's like the family my mom is like the family fact checker for me mm-hmm. um, so yeah you know like he I mean I don't think he gets what I do but I also think like you know that doesn't really matter it's not a big deal to me where did you find and hone your comedic sensibility? Hmm. You mean, like, how did I, like, what did I do to get better or funnier, that kind of thing? Yeah, and also, um, yeah, where did it, where was the uh, origins of that? Yeah, some people come to comedy as, as a way of, uh, uh, as a way of defraying, uh, defraying insult, uh, as a self-defense mechanism in some cases, uh, or other people are just drawn to comedy and then they just kind of, they start developing their own voice. Well, you know, I think I've, I mean, I've always been a cut up, you know, I used to always get in trouble in school for talking too much in class. Um, I, that was always my worst grade. I got an unsatisfactory for talking in class all the time. So I think I was just, I was always a talker and a joke teller and, you know, trying to, you know, to be cute, as my mother would say, and, you know, um, command an audience in some form. Um, But, you know, I think, I mean, I was picked on a lot in, uh, or I say a lot, I mean, I don't think I was 
bullied or picked on any more than anyone else, but I do remember getting picked on in elementary school and junior high. I had a really big ears. I had a giant head, and my ears were just huge. In mm-hmm. fact, my ears have not grown at all since I was about five years old, and <laughs> if you look at them now, they, they kind of fit my head size, um, but they were huge. I mean, I, I had all kind of nicknames, you know, Radar and Dumbo and Satellite, and I think... I just, I mean, this is also Mississippi where, like, everybody has a nickname anyway. So, like, they might be making fun of you, but they're also making fun of everyone else at the same time. Mm-hmm. But I think I realized that, like, people, I mean, you know, like, I had an older brother who was at my school, too. And, you know, we played sports and we were, you know, had a deer camp. And, you know, when you're around guys in the locker room or at a hunt club or something, I mean, everybody's making fun of everybody. You kind of have to grow a pretty thick skin. And since I wasn't really, I mean... I wasn't, you know, mean. I wasn't going to fight anybody. I wasn't a violent kid. I think I just realized that if you could make fun of them, too, that you could kind of, you know, uh, they would respect you a little bit more. Um, And so I just, I think I cultivated my sense of humor that way. I mean, there's a lot of sarcasm on a baseball team and a football team, and you have to get used to it. So I think I did. I mean, I think I was naturally funny or at least naturally wanting to be funny, and then that was just cultivated. Like, that was my defense mechanism. Like, you know, other people in Mississippi have guns or knives (laughs) or something, but for me it was just being funny. And if, if, like, somebody made fun of me, if I could then make fun of him and get all of his friends to laugh at him, uh, they would all like me more, and then he wouldn't uh, wouldn't hurt me because his friends all of a sudden liked me because I was being funny. Um, So, yeah, I definitely cultivated as I as I grew up and I, and I got I did a lot of plays and stuff in college um but just because naturally I just wanted somewhere to be a stage to you know um you know perform Shakespeare and that kind of thing uh, and I did stand up for a little while in graduate school and I did comedy improv and you know I was okay at that stuff it was really it really was hard I mean comedy improv was awesome but it was so much work and, and stand up was the same way but I really enjoyed writing material for the stand up and writing plays or monologues to perform. And that's really how I got into writing prose and essays is just realizing that, like, you know, all the funny things you're saying in class or all the funny things you're saying to your friends, there's a way to turn that into a story. There's a way to... um, to go to school for that, to teach that, to make a living doing that. And it took a long time to realize that, like, I could make a living doing something that was pretty fun for me to do just naturally. And what are some of the pitfalls of the writer who tries to be funny and misses? Because that's about a, as skin-cringing a moment as there, as there is in, in writing and uh, in performance, I imagine. I mean, yeah, I mean, being funny is really hard, like... You know, I would consider myself a pretty funny person and and have always been pretty, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people who think I'm, a, you know, an idiot and a jackass and, you know, don't think I'm funny at all. Uh, but I've always, you know, made some people laugh. And even that, like, even for me, finding a way to, to be funny on the page took a long time. I mean, it has probably taken, it probably took me 10 years of, you know, writing for three hours a day to find, to figure out a way to, to, be, to be as funny in prose as I was doing comedy improv or doing um, monologues or something like that. And, you know, I mean, the pitfalls are it's not funny, right? Like, yeah. I mean, you just have to, you have to write funny jokes and funny descriptions. And, you know, I teach a humor class uh, here at SCAD, and, and these students that I've had this term, they are 
super talented. They're great writers, and you you can tell when you interact with them that they're pretty um, they're pretty funny people, or they they're sarcastic, they're ironic. Um, and then, but on the page, it was just painful. You know, it was really hard for them to figure out a way that just because they said funny things to their friends while they're sitting around at a coffee shop doesn't mean that they can write in in that same way. And it was in. Of course, they got much better as the term progressed, and their last pieces were awesome and publishable. But you just have to write funny stuff, and you have to write things that you read out loud. And, I mean, nobody laughs. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what's so great about writing humor is that you have an immediate barometer for whether or not it's successful. I mean, if you read a, you know, a, a lyric essay, something thoughtful, something reflective, you know, it might be sad or it might be dramatic or it might just be suspenseful, but when you read it, nobody reacts and you don't, there's no audible visceral reaction. You can't tell in an audience, you know, whether or not the piece was successful. Um, it's, or at least it's hard to, but, or, you know, you can tell by the, how loud they applaud, I guess, at the end. But in a humor piece, that's what's so fantastic about it is that if it's not working, you'll just hear crickets. And it's just <laughs> something about that really raises the stakes for me. I really love the fact that no, I mean, I really write all my stuff to be read out loud, or at least envision at some level, you know, whether I'm reading it out loud at a reading or whether somebody just really likes it in a magazine and wants to read it to their friends, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always try to imagine, what does it sound like? And <laughs> are there enough laughs? Like, is there a laugh, you know, if it's a humor piece, then there better be something funny every 30 or 60 seconds, right? Every page better have a couple of good laughs on it. And I love the intensity of knowing that when I read it, if you read a funny piece for an audience and they don't laugh, I mean, it's painful. And, you know, I think, you know, to answer your earlier question about, like, <laughs> what are the pitfalls? Like, how do you learn how to do that? How horrible is that? You know, I did speech writing for, for a long time, um, I guess for about five or six years. And, and the, the the person that I wrote speeches for, you know, she said, well, you know, we, there needs to be a few laughs in this next speech. And I had written just a few for her. I just started the job. And she said, you know, we need to have a few laughs here, you know, have a couple of moments of levity so the audience can relax, that kind of thing. And I had already written a couple of mildly funny essays by that time in my career, but I really hadn't written, like, a speech for for somebody else, you know, a real person is supposed to be funny. And, oh, my gosh, it was so hard. It was nerve-wracking because this other human being, you know, was going to take my words and go up in front of 500 people and deliver a line. And this person was not a comedian. They were, mm-hmm. a, you know, a leader. And, you know, they were somebody who often gives speeches, but they're not a, a comedian. And the intensity of knowing, gosh, if this person fails, it's not just me, it's them. You know, they're the one who fails. And so I would, you know, so what I would do is I would write three or four different bits or different jokes that could then be inserted into the speech. And I would show them to her and I'd say, you know, do you find any of these funny? Are they kind of funny? You know, and she'd X out three of them and then circle one. And then she'd say, this is okay, you know, and so we keep working on it. And you really have to tweak everything. You know, you have to tweak the syntax and you have to make sure the tone is right. You know, I, I tend to be... I think a little too mean or cold-hearted or cruel in my humor, uh, at least in the early drafts. I tend to be too mean to myself and to other people that I'm describing. Um, and so I find that, you know, as I revise the, the meanness, I try to kind of wash the meanness out 
and just make it as true as possible. And of course, sometimes the truth does hurt, but it doesn't have to. Sometimes I find that you know I would be uh, I would be being a little acid or a little cruel just for no reason. It wasn't even funny. And so when I was writing these jokes and these speeches, I found that sometimes my sense of humor was just a little too harsh, and I'd have to pull back and make it a little more sophisticated. You know, I think the first funny speech I wrote for this person, you know, I got a few laughs. And you're sitting in the wings and you're holding a copy of the speech and and you're, you know, I mean, you're sweating bullets. It's awful. And, you know, the person comes off, the applause happens and, and you know, she says, you know, I think that was pretty good. And you go, okay, and, you know, and you recover your pulse and, you know, you don't die. And the next time you, it gets a little bit better and a little bit better. And, you know, after a few years, I was able to write, you know, five and six jokes per page, things that felt natural within the speech itself that felt honest and that experience was so key to me then being able to write my own funny memoir humor just knowing that like you have to know what's going to be funny to somebody else it's not it's not you can't be writing you know, they always say you got to write for yourself and I guess there's truth to that but I mean I don't know you really have to write and think like you have to think about your ideal reader and are they going to think this is funny and if you if you look at your stuff and you go is this really funny if the answer is probably not, then it probably isn't, and you have to take it out, and you just have to keep trying, and it's, <laughs> it takes a long time. Yeah, and uh, do, you get, do you ever get a sense that some of your students um, that just, in being breezy and as people, they, you said that they're pretty, they're, they're funny and entertaining to be around, but when they try to put it on the page that it comes across as just trying too hard? Yeah, I mean, that's what, that's what failed humor tends to be, right? I mean, it, it, it's always trying too hard, because if, if you're not trying at all, then it's not even humor. It's just it's just words. It's just a paragraph. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, what, what happens when it's forced, when it's, um, the, you know, the worst humor is the forced kind, whether it's a pun or something corny, you know, a play on words, um, the kind of humor where everybody groans, like, oh, okay, like, we get it, you know, like, that's, that's for stuff and and you can tell I, I can look back at early stuff that I wrote and it was just so forced I was just because you're really you're really just grappling at anything you can find to get a laugh and it just takes a really long time to find your voice I mean it, there's so many things that are happening in a work of, of literature anyway not not just uh, I mean even stuff that's not funny right mm-hmm there's so much that's happening. You're trying to uh, describe physical objects in a way that seems real and believable. You're trying to communicate an idea of who a person is or what's happening in this particular moment or what you're thinking or what someone is thinking. And to be doing all of that and uh, in a way that makes people laugh is, I mean, it's, it's a little bit like juggling while you're riding a bike. You know, it's, it's just something that even... You know, I'd say even five years ago, you know, I might be able to write a funny tweet or a funny Facebook update. And and sometimes with my students, not in every class, but I've had them do that because the stakes are so low. You're just writing 140 characters. Of course, it's still hard to get a laugh. I mean, it's, you know, it's really hard to get a laugh in 140 characters. But the idea that it's so short, I think, is... um, lessens the pressure on them a little bit to do all the other things that a story or an essay has to do just to say look you've got one little paragraph for a facebook update or one little sentence for a tweet and you just have to say something funny now of course in the class we do uh i did learn i think as i was learning how to write you know i learned some of these techniques um that other funny people 
you know, use. Uh, and some of some of the people that I really love to read are uh, like Anthony Lane, the film critic for The New Yorker. Uh, I mean, he is so funny. And he, he's not funny in every piece. I mean, if he really likes a movie, he, he's, he's usually not going to, you know, make fun of it. Um, but if he really hates a movie, like his reviews of uh, Pearl Harbor from like 10 or 12 years ago, mm-hmm. his reviews of some of the Star Wars movies, um, his review of Speed, too, I mean, which was like in 1995 or something. I mean, these are classic works of contemporary humor. They're so funny. And so, you know, as I was learning to write, like the way he describes um, characters and, and scenes and movies is hilarious. And they're easily applicable to describing characters and scenes in fiction or characters and scenes in your own life. And, you know, I started learning some of these things just from reading some, you know, reading his work and, and the work of others. But now in my classes, of course, I kind of reverse engineer it and I try to show the students, like, before they're funny, I try to show them, like, here's how the other people are doing it. So, like, you know, you take somebody like um, like Jack Handy, who writes for The New Yorker, and I think, I don't know if he still writes for Saturday Night Live or not. He used to. Um, you know, he had Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy, which was big in the late 80s and the early 90s. Um, you know, he his technique is, is understatement or um, litotes, which is just uh, and also dramatic irony, right? So, in a lot of in a lot of Jack Handy's humor, his speakers are clueless. They have no idea what they're saying. They're very they're usually very confident and they're very dumb mm-hmm. and. You know, to be able to show that to a student or, you know, and just and then say, okay, so write me a character who's very confident in what he's saying, but completely stupid. And what's so great about dramatic irony is that the reader knows that this person's an idiot. That's how it works. And that's why they call it irony. The reader is aware that the speaker doesn't know what he's talking about. And there's, we get some sort of weird, sick pleasure from feeling like we know more than what a character knows. Uh, and so being able to show students that and then say, okay, let's see if we can find this in literature, because dramatic irony exists in not just in humor writing, it exists in you know, all kinds of literature, and then to try and do that themselves. And so in some ways, you know, it's really hard to say, like, okay, write something funny. Well, what is that? What does that even mean? Like, yeah. you know, natural humorists, I mean, people who are just naturally funny, a stand-up comedian, uh, somebody, an actor, you know, in comedies, you know, like somebody who is naturally funny, they don't have to have names for what they do. They just do it. They just have an instinct for it. You know, but in a classroom setting, for somebody who really wants to get better at it, you know, it's really good to take, come up with some names for these techniques and say, okay, this is dramatic irony. This is verbal irony. This is misdirection. This is hyperbole. And then to see how people like George Saunders or Anthony Lane or David Sedaris or Bill Bryson or Simon Rich. Uh, or Charles Portis to see how they do these things and then to try and imitate. And you're going to imitate and, you know, it's going to suck real bad, but, you know, hopefully over the years it sucks less and less. And I don't know, five, ten years later, you've got something that's actually funny that people want to publish. Yeah, it's funny you brought up Bill Bryson because I just finished reading his memoir, The Life and Times of the Thunderbolt Kid. And it's it's hysterical, especially in the early goings when uh, he'll be he'll be describing, he'll be like, yeah, the, the, the neighborhood kids, we, we went out there and we were playing a, fo- playing a football game and there were easily three million kids on the field. <laughs> and, right. and it's just that one little that hyperbolic statement that it's coming through uh, the seven-year-old's lens. And it, it was just, it's just a very simple thing, but it's hysterical on, on, on its face, even though it's just completely ludicrous. Well, like, in that line, okay, so... 
so there, it, there's two things happening in that line. So first of all, you know, Bryson is saying what his seven-year-old self thought, right? That, that the, the seven-year-old self was so overwhelmed by how many kids were on the field. We as readers know that the seven-year-old is a is exact. The seven-year-old is wrong, right? There aren't that many kids. Yep. But we also have pleasure in knowing that we know a little bit more than this little seven-year-old idiot does, right? So there's some pleasure. That's dramatic irony. We're we're getting pleasure from knowing more than this stupid person. Of course, the kid's seven, so it's okay that he's stupid. But we we enjoy that. And then there's hyperbole, like you say, with the seven million or whatever the number was. And so, you know, I mean, just to to be able to do that. I mean, I think people can do it. Funny people can do that more naturally when they talk. But to do that when you write is such a – it feels so much more complicated. You really have to be really loose, you know, when you're writing because we're, I think we're so used to being truthful. When I say truthful, I mean like logically, literally truthful when we write, whether it's because of, you know, our – good-hearted English teachers, God bless them, from, you know, junior high and high school and college. You know, they we're trying to be as literal as possible. We're trying to be as clear as possible when we write a sentence or write a paper about Dostoevsky or write a paper about politics. And when you're writing humor or really any kind of literature, you know, you're not being literal. You have to be loose. You have to describe things in ways that aren't lowercase t true, right? Mm-hmm. But like, that, you know, to say there were easily 7 million people on the field, um, you know, if you write that in an English class, you know, English composition, your teacher's going to say, or were there 7 million people, or was it more like 30, or was it more like 20? You know, the humor writer and the writer of literature has to feel loose enough to say, first of all, the reader is going to know there weren't 7 million people, right? You naturally know that because you're reading a book, you're not an idiot. Um, but to, have to be loose enough and comfortable enough as a writer to make up something that's clearly not true, but in the service of some larger idea, for example, that obviously the seven-year-old is so overwhelmed by how many people are on the field that he conceives of it as being, you know, the population of New York City. I mean, that it takes a lot of confidence for a writer to get to a point where they can exaggerate like that confidently without looking like they're just making something up. Yeah, Hemingway has said something to the effect that a writer has to take a beating to write a really funny book. Um, I was wondering what your feelings were about that statement. Well, you know, what's, there's the old saying that comedy equals tragedy plus time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that's true. You know, you, you but, you know, everybody, <laughs> I mean, first of all, you know, there's no good story where, no, where somebody's not taking a beating, right? I mean, bad things happen in every story, you know, in every book of the Bible, in every you know, play by Shakespeare in every good poem, something bad is happening or has happened or will happen and is being thought about or experienced, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm trying to think of what E.B. White said. He's got this essay called Some Remarks on Humor, and he says something to the effect of that, um, you know, a humorist will make pain pay, you know, that a humorist will take the the the, the terrible thing that happens and you know you you turn it into you redeem it a little bit you you turn it into something um that we can all enjoy i mean you know you look at comedy like most comedy you know if tragedy is about looking at death and acknowledging that you can't really escape it right death is coming for us all even our greatest heroes you know hamlet uh that you know it, that everybody is going to die, that death comes for us all. And in comedy, 
kind of is what happens next. So if death is coming for us all, if none of us can can be noble and great uh, and somehow cheat death, then what do you do? And what you do is comedy, right? So tragedy is the realization that we're all going to die, and comedy is, okay, so given that fact, how, sh- how should we behave? And I really think that's, you know, that all, I mean, all humor is about, you know, terrible things. I tell my students um, that, you know, humor really starts in either uh, anger or anxiety. It's one of those two things. It's either you're really mad about something out there in the world, right, which is how we get satire, how we get the daily show. You know, you're, you're really mad about this ridiculous thing. And maybe mad is not always the best word. Maybe uh, incensed or maybe maybe you're raging about it. Maybe you just sense there's some injustice, but it's, it's external. And then the other kind of humor is internal. It's you're mad about something that's happening inside of you. You're anxious. You, you have fears. Uh, and so most humor feels like it comes from one of those two places. You're either really pissed off about something in the world or really pissed off about something inside of you, and it's usually a little bit of both. And you already touched upon this a little bit. Um, who are some of your writing influences from a pure comedic standpoint? Hmm, well, I mean, I definitely have to say, uh, I mean, I guess I would have to start with uh, with stand-up comics because when I was little, I mean, those were the first funny people, you know, I ever listened to, and I can remember... Um, Oh my gosh, I guess it was, uh, what is it, Comic Relief from the 80s, maybe like 1985 or 86. Mm-hmm. I remember renting that on VHS, and, you know, Robin Williams was on that, and George Carlin. And I think Robin Williams was really my, my first favorite comedian. Um, and just the kind of insanity of his stuff, the, 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 it got so absurd and it was so frenetic. Um, maybe because he was doing so much coke, I'm not sure, but he, he was he never stopped and there were never there was never a breather. And I it was just so energizing to watch, kind of mesmerizing. Um, so I loved Robin Williams, I loved George Carlin, uh, I really liked Richard Pryor, uh, and uh who else? Oh, that that guy with the long hair. Oh, Gallagher, who did the oh. uh, put the watermelons. Yeah. Oh man, I, I used to love watching Gallagher. Now you know, I probably. I mean, it's it's pretty corny stuff. But I remember when I was a kid, just being so mesmerized by that. Even more than funny movies, I really loved watching comedy. And we didn't have cable or anything growing up, so every now and then you'd have a comedian on Star Search. If you remember Star Search, mm-hmm. it was like the American Idol of the 1980s. Um, and Sinbad was on there. There were some other comedians. We would record Star Search and watch it. And occasionally there'd be like stand up on like these weird shows on Saturday afternoon. And I would watch those religiously. And of course, listen to um, Prairie Home Companion on the radio. Uh, and then, you know, when I was in college, I think the first real funny book that I read was The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. My roommate, Brian, gave that book to me, and uh, I kind of thought it was like some kind of sci-fi nerd book, which I guess technically that's what it is. Um, But man, it was so funny, and it was so smart, and it was just doing these kind of magic tricks with your brain, you know, just even in the first, even in the prologue, I mean, there's this great line about digital watches in the prologue to this, and when when I read it, I remember exactly where I was sitting, I was sitting on uh, my college campus, uh, and, you know, it was a quiet day, and I was just, I just opened this book up, I guess I was bored, and it was just so funny and so unexpected that this kind of 
it was this kind of humor that I had heard comedians do, but here it was in book form, and I loved books. I mean, I've been reading my whole life, you know, reading a book a week, and then to see that, oh, wow, like that kind of funny can also happen here was really kind of blew my mind. And so, you know, there I think there's five books in that series, and I read all of those in about two weeks. And, um, of course, I also was disillusioned with that book or with those that series because I remember by about book three it stopped being as funny. And I thought, well, maybe it's just me, you know, so I found another funny novel, and I found another um, Terry Pratchett, um, Neil Gaiman, those guys. I don't know if that was back then or maybe it had been a few years later, but I remember thinking, like, I just got really hungry to find funny stuff. And I would ask everybody, and this is in college and then in graduate school, like, who are some funny writers? Who's writing funny novels? Who's writing funny essays, funny plays? And, of course, everybody thinks they know, right? So other writers or writing students or writing teachers would tell me and they'd be like, oh, this book is so funny. You look on the back of the book and it says, oh, you know, laugh out loud funny or you'll be rolling on the floor and, you know, I never would be. I'd read this stuff and like a couple of pages might be funny, but I'm not going to wait. I don't want to waste, you know, 12 hours of my life reading a book when I laugh two or three times and it was really disheartening to me, um, but the, and that's in one, you know, one way, one reason I started trying to write stuff is because I thought I want, I want to write something that makes me laugh the whole way through or as, as, uh, or as much of the way through as you can and still be a good story. And, you know, the first book I read that was really like that for me was um, A Confederacy of Dunces, uh, which I read, I guess, uh, I don't know, I was in my early 20s, maybe 23 or 24 when I read that book. And that was another one that really kind of blew my mind because it was just as funny as Hitchhikers, but it was also smart. It, you know, it had... There were big ideas in it about religion and philosophy and how humans should act, but they, but it never took itself seriously. The the writer didn't necessarily have these ideas so much as the characters did, um, and so just the I, the way that the 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 idea of combining really big, huge, abstract philosophical thinking about how humans should should be with uh, with humor was just awesome and you know again it was just kept whetting my appetite trying to find something funny and you know I read all the Woody Allen books and you know Steve Martin had a book called Pure Drivel and I read that and then I started to see that there were different kinds of humor that you know you've got like your basic comic novel like uh, A Confederacy of Dunces or Hitchhiker's Guide and Straight Man is by Richard Russo is a terrifically funny novel at least the first half of it um, is as good as anything I've ever read so there's that, but then I realized there's also, of course, you've got nonfiction humor, you've got essays and memoir, um, but then you also have this kind of weird humor, like you see at McSweeney's Internet Tendency and on Shouts and Murmurs, that's not really so much a story, at least usually not a story, but, you know, whether it's a list or a how-to or an open letter or you have an, you know, an inanimate object is talking to the reader, um, and so just to discover these different modes of humor and where to find them and to realize which one, which ones I was good at, which ones I was not quite as good at, which ones I wanted to write. Uh, but man, it's really everywhere. I mean, George Saunders, you know, you know, his stuff is both really funny and often really sad or really dark or really weird. Uh, his book, The Brain Dead Megaphone, has some hilarious essays in it. Nostalgia uh, is a great essay. A Brief Study of the British is a great essay, um, but his book, Pastoralia, has some great stories, as do his other books, but Pastoralia has some really funny stuff that we read with my humor students. Um, and these are, these are stories that are really touching. They're not just like 
you know, it's not just fart jokes and potty humor and gross things happening and making fun of people. I mean, these are really human stories where crazy, weird, strange, sad things happen. Uh, and then, you know, sometimes it ends well. Sometimes it ends on a positive note and sometimes it ends on a more of a question mark. But man, like that guy has got something crazy, weird happening in his brain. And so, I, you know, I just, I try to discover new stuff every week and I try to share that with my students. And, you know, everything you read should make you get better well you've definitely got a skill for it and uh it was tremendously entertaining to to read the wishbone again the wishbone won the creative nonfiction southern sin essay contest uh, be sure to subscribe to creative nonfiction to get your hands on harrison's essays and many many others harrison it's been a great pleasure to have you on the show thank you so much for taking some time out of your afternoon Brendan, I really appreciate it. I hope I didn't talk your ear off, and I really appreciate what you're doing with the podcast. I think it's pretty great.